This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. Thank you very much, Durican, and perhaps you, you should have waited the applause for the end. Maybe you won't applause at the end. So, um, I'm going to talk about uh, people, self-determination, and theories of self-determination. Uh, so, uh, I can go back a little bit here. That's the plan. People first, and some theoretical clarification. I'm a philosopher. So you're going to be hearing uh, fairly abstract uh, uh, elements, concepts, and theories. Um, uh, so ultimately, I want to be talking about self-determination and the theories of self-determination. Uh, the idea of defining a people is something that we have to discuss, because it's crucial for the, the, the um, talk that I'm giving you today. Uh, and, uh, but it's the most difficult thing. We know that it's impossible to define what a people is. So how are we going to make some progress? Here, there would be thousands of things to say. I won't be uh, mentioning them all. But there's one thing I would like to make clear, is that there is a possibility to make progress in spite of the fact that you cannot really define what's a people or what's a nation. I'm uh, using the two terms interchangeably. Uh, the reason why it's impossible to define what is the people is because there are many different sorts of people. There are at least, at the very least, seven different sorts of peoples. It's uh, very often seven different ways of understanding one's relation to a particular territory. I'm not going to go through the details of this, but let me say that if we think in terms of a plural, plurality of people, suddenly uh, the counterexamples that we are always confronted with when we come with our definition of a people uh, may disappear because there are many different sorts of people. Acknowledging that fact makes us make some progress in the understanding of the national phenomenon. Uh, I'm introducing a very specific terminology here because I'm trying to capture many different things. So I'm using existing vocabulary for a particular purpose. Let's say, for instance, the ethnic conception of a people. In that case, the population would share a certain self-understanding. The population would think of itself as sharing the same ancestry, whether it's true or not. They represent themselves as having the same ancestry. Uh, some indigenous peoples are in, in entertaining that view. A cultural people would be a population that would represent itself as having different ancestral origins, but still totally assimilated to a single language, a single culture, and a, a single uh, history. The, and without no government at all. Uh, they have institutions, but not governmental institutions in the, the case that I'm introducing here that I describe as the cultural people. The Acadian people, the Rom people, would be uh, examples of that. Then there's the sociopolitical people. I like that kind of people because it relates, it seems to me, to the Quebec people, but also to the Catalonian people, to the Scottish people. That is... It's a population sharing the same common public language, common public institution, and common public history. But it can, be, it can represent itself as not only multi-ethnic, but also multicultural, and perhaps even sometimes, I would say in the case of Quebec, multinational. Because there are many, indeed, 11 indigenous peoples on the territory of Quebec. But in this case, the identification of the whole population is to all the citizens on the territory of a non-sovereign governmental administrative unit. So everyone that is within Catalonia is part of the Catalonian people, according to their view. So here we have government, governmental institutions, and they apply on an official territory, a region, 
a canton, it could be a canton. It, not all cantons are nations, but a nation can be within a canton, it's possible. A province, in the case of Quebec, or uh, uh, an administrative unit that comes from a devolution of power, like, for instance, in Scotland. A civic people, again, once again, that's not the official use, I'm using technical vocabulary. Don't mind the vocabulary, think about the, the real thing. Imagine a population now that has, it may be multi-ethnic, may be multicultural, but in any case, it's one people. Uh, the population sees itself as being one people with a sovereign state. So it's the classical idea of a one people, one language, and one sovereign state. You've got populations like France, for instance, that entertain that self-representation. And in some cases, maybe it almost it really applies. In the case of Iceland, Portugal, and Korea, You've got more models like that, but they're hard to find because in most countries, they are multinational. The multi-societal people would be another kind of sovereign state, but different from the civic kind of sovereign state. It's a sovereign state in which the population sees itself as composed of many different peoples. Uh, Great Britain, Canada, Spain, Belgium. Then there's the multi-territorial people. It's a different way of occupying a territory. The multi-territorial people is a population that is on uh, a single continuous territory, but that continuous territory does not fit with the official international <coughs> borders. So Aquasasne is a continuous territory involving the Mohawk people, partly falling on the Quebec side, partly falling on the Ontario border and also in New York State in a continuous territory. But the best example is Kurdistan. And finally, the diasporic, diasporic people would be a population that is disseminated on many discontinuous territories and being a minority on each of these territories and the old Israel uh, before the creation of Israel, the old Jewish diasporic nation was perhaps the best example of that. We could discuss these things for hours. My main idea was to introduce a complexity. We think too much in simplistic terms. There is the ethnic nation and the civic nation, and that's it. Simpl it's much more simpler, much less complex, but I believe much far away from the reality of the complexity of the national phenomenon. The situation is even more complex than that because in addition to seven sorts of peoples, there are minority fragments of peoples. Uh, and there are two main categories. Um, what I call contigu contiguous diasporas. These are minorities that are extensions of a neighboring nation. Uh, like for instance, the Russians, in the Baltic states, or the Palestinian within Israel. So we often call them kin minorities. We also say that, pejoratively, I suppose, not really seriously, they are on the wrong side of the border. Uh, so that's one kind of group that I believe should be introduced with, because it has specific needs. These, are, these populations don't represent themselves as being by themselves people. They, they, in general, never ask for self-determination or self-government, but they have specific needs, and they are different from another kind of minority fragment of people that is not a people. It's non-contiguous diasporas, and the most famous case is an immigration community. That is a community composed of individuals that were not born on their country of residence, and that still identifies to their original country. It's not always immigrant communities that are non-contiguous diasporas. Sometimes the second generation of a population, therefore, that was, that, that was born on the country of residence, still identifies with a foreign country. And because of that, it's another instance of non-contiguous diaspora. So you see the complexity of the phenomenon. I think it's even more complex than that. All these self-representations are not always legitimate. I mentioned the case of France. I would think that most French people represent their people as composed as one people with one language on one ter sovereign territory. 
Actually, uh, as a matter of fact, this self-representation is not legitimate. So self-representations are not legitimate. In that case, it is not legitimate because there is a Corsican people. There, there might be other reasons. We could say that Brittany also still exists. But at least, clearly, the Corsican people exist. And therefore, the self-representation of French is not legitimate. Um, um, I could add many other clarification. Uh, the taxonomy that I just introduced is perhaps incomplete. If you're telling me, aha, Mr. Seymour, you forgot another sort of people, I say, be my guest. Uh, the complexity, I'm willing to admit, is perhaps even more complicated than what I introduced. My idea is precisely that the reality of the national phenomenon is extremely complex. Uh, it's not, I'm not in using circular definitions. I'm not using the, the notion of people in trying to define um, the self-representation involved in the, these different sorts of peoples. Uh, as I said, uh, national self-representation is not always legitimate. <coughs> I'm also just stating bluntly that there's no essentialism involved here. But the, m the main reason why is that, and it's the other sentence after, in spite of the fact that all these populations have different self-representation and they are different sorts of people, they are all having an institutional identity. Uh, they are all, in Will Kimlicka's sense, societal cultures. And uh, they, are, they, are in, they have institutions, not always governmental institutions. I introduced different sorts of people that did not have governmental institutions, but nevertheless, they have an institutional identity. If your population, like the Acadian people, for instance, has got one language, um, w w uh, a history, different institutions in which this language is spoken and in which the uh, history is entertained, well, then you've got an institutional <laughs> identity, an, institution, an institutional personality of the Acadian people in the political realm, and I would say that all sorts of people, the seven sorts of people, have an institutional identity in the political realm. And when I'm talking about a people, I'm talking about a people having an institutional identity. So this means that uh, um, just as we can speak of persons with their rights, understanding that the persons in question are citizens, Therefore, understanding person with their institutional identity of citizens. Similarly, we can talk about peoples with their own institutional uh, identity. So it, there's no uh, complex social ontology involved. I'm not postulating strange social organism or macro subjects. I'm not uh, involved in a complex and delicate uh, metaphysical uh, ontology postulating collective organism. Not at all. I'm just considering societies with their institutional framework, similarly as what we do with persons. You know, I, I, I do a seminar on personal identity, and the metaphysics of personal identity can lead you in all sorts of areas, and there's no consensus. Is that a reason for saying that persons should not have rights? Of course not, and the reason is because persons are understood in terms of their institutional identity of citizens, so the metaphysics dissolve into uh, the consideration of the institutional identity of persons. So similarly with people, let's forget about the metaphysics of people, just talk about their institutional identity. And so societal cultures have a structure of culture, and that's the institutional aspect. And they may also have a character of culture, as Will Kimlicka has discussed the matter. OK, and I'm considering also, when I'm talking about people, some subjective elements. You've noticed that when I was mentioning the different sorts of people, I was saying that the population has got a certain self-representation of itself. That's a subjective element that I wish to include in the concept of a people, in addition to the will of the people to survive as a people. Um, but I'm not considering things like the emotional attachment of the individual to its people, or the sense of loyalty of the person towards the people, or the <coughs> narrative collective identity that the individual would endorse. These are subjective elements that may vary systematically from one person to another, 
and for a single person from one time to another. So I'm excluding that from the relevant aspects of a people. There can be multilingual peoples, of course, and we could say many things on each of these claims that I'm making, uh, just to show that we can make lots of clarification on the notion of people that I've been using. Okay, so since I don't have much time, I'm immediately moving to the notion of self-determination. There are two sorts of self-determination. Basically, there's the internal self-determination and the external self-determination. What is internal self-determination? I'm going to use the official wording from almost word to word that occurs in many UN documents when they try to define internal self-determination. It's the right of a people to develop its own economic, social, and cultural institution and the right to determine its own political status. That occurs in all definitions, word to word. Uh, I add within the encompassing state to make things clear that we're talking here about the self-determination within a sovereign state. Um, external self-determination, it's very often identified with secession, uh, but I think it's only one instance of external self-determination. We should have a more general uh, definition that I submit to you. It's the right to own a sovereign state. So it fits with the case of secession, but it also applies to people that already have a state, but that do not necessarily have the right to own the state. So external self-determination, it's the, the right to own a state, whether you already have one or whether you don't have one. In this way, it may allow us to use the words external self-determination in many different applications. Uh, here is the most uh, philosophical moment of my presentation. In one of the talks that I gave, Will Kimlicka was in the back. I suppose you all know Will Kimlicka. He was in the back of the audience and suddenly he raises his hand and he says, Michel, can you tell me what's your argument for saying that peoples have self-determination? A very clear and simple question, but a fundamental question that we never ask. And uh, here is my answer to his question. Um, I'm, I'm developing my account within the general framework of political liberalism. And when people hear political liberalism, one thinks, oh yeah, that is to be contrasted with uh, economic liberalism. Uh, not really. It's a specific name of a doctrine within the general liberal political philosophy. You've got many versions of a liberal political philosophy. You've got John Stuart Mill's, uh, Emmanuel Kant's version. But in 1993, John Rawls introduced a book entitled Political Liberalism, and that's the name of a particular interpretation of a liberal political philosophy. What is it exactly? It's the attempt to develop poli a liberal political philosophy without basing it on a particular comprehensive theory involving us into endorsing moral individualism. Um, John Rawls in this book says, I'm going to try to develop a liberal political philosophy without uh, re having a recourse to uh, moral individualism, the traditional moral individualism. In a way, uh, he wants to be neutral between communitarianism and moral individualism. The big battle that occurred in the, the United States is he, he tried to formulate a new version of liberalism that is no longer choosing between those two options uh, for many reasons that I could go into. Uh, is a liberal philosophy wants to be acknowledging moral diversity. Well, there's another moral diversity that he did not consider, that he's now considering, is the one between moral individualism and communitarianism. So he has a more abstract version of liberalism because of that. When you are dealing with political liberalism, you are using, just as I did in the last few minutes, institutional conceptions of the different political agents. Uh, so Rawls develops a political conception of persons, understood as citizens, and a political conception of peoples, understood as societies or societal cultures. That's the Wilkemnika's uh, wording. But Rawls <coughs> used peoples and sometimes also societies. Okay, so all institutional agents within that framework 
that, uh, that is, all agents that have an institutional identity are to be respected, and they should respect other institutional agents. This is not individuals. You've got citizens, of course, but you also have people that also have an institutional identity and that also must be respected. So you've got two, at least two, moral sources of valid moral claims, two different sources of valid moral claims, com coming from citizens and coming from peoples. So peoples may be such institutional agents, and they, of course, have all sorts of interests, peoples, but those interests that relate to the maintenance and development of their identity should perhaps be right. So they should have the right to maintain and develop their institutional identity. And if I go on just a little bit to paraphrase a little more, I will say, so they should have the right to maintain and develop their economic, social, and cultural institutions. But this amounts precisely to self-determination. So that's how I derive the right to self-determination using political liberalism. This is going very rapidly to, uh, uh, to an argument that I find useful to uh, say that I, I can defend the view that there are people. What do I mean? I just defined it. And they have the right to self-determination. How do I say that? I just explain how I, I say that. So let's suppose, I'm sure that this is, should not be taken as obvious, let's suppose that there are peoples and that they have the right to self-determination, understood in the sense of internal self-determination. <laughs> Nevertheless, here there are many different interpretations in the literature. Uh, some, there was at least a substantial sense of internal self-determination, <coughs> and there is also a mere procedural sense of internal self-determination. And if you were talking about a substantial sense of internal self-determination, I think that we can see in the literature at least three interpretations of that substantial sense. So what is it exactly? Well, in the most minimal sense, one could say that a people is able to self-determine itself internally within an encompassing state if it is able to elect representatives coming from its people and if those representatives are able to play a role in the government of the encompassing state. When that happens, we say, well, the people is able to internally self-determine itself. And it's exactly the definition that the Supreme Court of Canada is using uh, in its reference case on the secession of Quebec in 1998. They say Quebec is able to internally self-determine themselves because on a regular basis, they've been electing individuals from their people. And these people, these individuals, found themselves running the government. So they have internal self-determination. In a more substantial and more, let's say, uh, canonic sense of self-determination, a people that has a right to self-determination in the internal sense has a right to self-government. Uh, this is more usual. You say, how could a people be able to internally self-determine itself within an encompassing state? Well, if it were able to have some kind of self-government. Um, and... Uh, uh, Wilkin Nicker precisely uh, uses the term internal self-determination in the sense of asking for being a, a, a allowed to have a self-government. But there's another more robust sense of internal self-determination understood in the substantial sense. It would be to have an arrangement within the encompassing state that would be made to measure for that people. A specific constitutional arrangement precisely meant for the people in question. Having political representation is something that may equally be distributed. And having a self-government, it may also be a self-government next to other self-government. But in the case of a special constitutional status, you've got politics of difference here, where the specific needs of the people are met uh, with a special constitutional status. Like, let's say they would have a certain form of asymmetric federalism. That would be an instance of a specific uh, constitutional status. That would be, would be uh, <laughs> internal self-determination in the more robust sense. And finally, procedural uh, right to internal self-determination. This would mean the right to participate in the negotiation, conversation, and uh, deliberation over any constitutional change. In Canada, for instance, for a long time, the indigenous peoples did not even participate to the the constitutional negotiations. And now they have been told from now on, whenever there will be negotiations, you will be involved. 
So in that sense, they would have, uh, in the procedural sense, a right to internally self-determine themselves because they would have the right to participate in the negotiation leading to a constitutional change. External self-determination. As I said, it's the right for a people to own a state, whether they already have a state or not. So it may have many different applications. We could consider uh, the, the case of a people that already has a state, but let's say, for instance, it is governed by a tyrant. So that a revolution must take place for the people to really have its own sovereign state and possess that sovereign state for itself. It's not the possession of a tyrant. So revolution, under my account here, is one instance of exercising one's right to external self-determination. Also, the right of stateless peoples to secede, therefore violating the territorial integrity of the sovereign state and uh, creating their own sovereign state. That would be another case, a more classic and well-known case of external self-determination. Usually, we identify, as I say, external self-determination with that kind of thing, that is secession. But in the international law, we also talk about the right to associate with one's own sovereign, with a particular sovereign state. A population that cannot have its own sovereign state may be led to violate the territorial integrity of an existing state, not to create its own sovereign state, but to associate with an already other existing state. It's the right to association. So there are many cases also of external self-determination. Now I'm moving, perhaps too fast, uh, to theories of external self-determination. And from now on, I will consider only the particular case of secession, because the different theories that are mostly discussed in the literature concerning external self-determination are theories of secession. So I'm talking here more restrictively, let's say, of theories of secession. Okay, so... I, and I'm using here the terminology introduced by Alan Buchanan. I'm really playing with the concepts introduced by Buchanan. So if you know his theory, uh, you should be at ease. Uh, when he talks about theories of uh, secession, he talks about general theories of secession, as opposed to what? As opposed to special, a special right to secession. What would that mean? It would mean some kind of privileges. Let's say that the USSR decides, it's not obligated to do so, but decide to introduce, as it did when it existed, a right to secede for its own republic. No matter whether it meant something serious or not, that's not the case here. It's allowing a privilege for its constitutive peoples. And we're not talking about the right to secede as a privilege. We're talking about the right to secede in general. In general, do we have the right to secede? Not, uh, can it be happened? Can we accept to give a privilege to someone? That's not an issue. No matter whether there are privileges or not. In general, are we entitled to secede? And I'm talking about the unilateral right to secede. In general, can we secede even if we don't have the approval of the encompassing state? I'm not discussing here secession that would be negotiated. Of course, secession may be negotiated, uh, and that's not a problem, but we're dealing here with the case of secession. In general, a people, under what condition a people may be entitled to secede, even if it doesn't have the approval of the sovereign state. So that's where the, 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 two, the, the debate occurs for Buchanan. And there are two main theories of uh, secession. There are primary right theories, and then I will be talking about remedial right-only theories. That's uh, Buchanan's theory of secession, perhaps better called a just cause theory of secession. So let's look at primary right theories of secession. So we're discussing here the theory of secession in general terms, uh, and we're discussing unilateral secession, and we are wondering under what condition what people could be uh, in general, having the right to unilaterally secede. Primary right theories will argue that they have the right to secede even in the absence of injustice. Even if they did not experience any injustice in the past, they may have the right to secede anyway. 
These are primary, it's a primary right to, to, to secede. And there are at least two instances of the primary right to secede. There, there are choice theories. In, the case, in that case, we say if a population on a given territory decides through a, major, a majority vote to secede, well then that population has the right to exercise secession, ex external self-determination. So Harry Baran and Christopher Wellman will argue in favor of that view. Uh, and there are also ascriptive theories. Uh, once again, it's the terminology of Buchanan. Uh, in that case, we're saying that peoples are very special entities. They have uh, an intrinsic value. And uh, if we want to preserve the intrinsic value of peoples, we have to give them the right to own their state. It's, we're not saying here, when we're endorsing ascriptive theories, that all people should have their own state. Uh, that's the Gellnerian definition of na what nationalism is about. We're not saying that each people should have their own state. Maybe there are many cases where it's better for the people not to have its own state. Nevertheless, it has the primary right. Maybe it's not good, a good idea to exercise the right. But nevertheless, it has a primary right to secede, even if they did, it did not experience any kind of injustice. Joseph Raz and Avishai Margaret are among those who defend that view. I believe that there are many others, though um, Margaret Moore in The Ethics of Nationalism as well. Okay, let's talk now about the um, remedial right-only theory of secession or just cause theory of secession. Uh, and I'm immediately talking about Buchanan's version of that particular theory. Buchanan says that in a collection of essays that I was proud to edit along with my colleagues Kai Nielsen and Justin Couture, he has a famous article, Alan Buchanan, entitled, uh, What's So Special About Nations? And according to, to Buchanan, all cultural groups could under certain very restrictive conditions be entitled to secede, not only peoples. There's nothing special about peoples that allows them to secede while others would not have such a right. So what does he mean by <laughs> cultural groups? He's not very clear on the extension of what he means by social group, but to, to give you a rough idea of what it could involve, it could involve first, of course, the seven sorts of peoples that I've introduced in the beginning. It could also involve minority fragments of people, either contiguous diasporas or non-contiguous diasporas. Uh, and it could also, I would say, in addition to that, involve also religious groups. So it's all the, collect, the, the, the cultural groups that are on the same level here. People do not have a special right. So all cultural groups could, <coughs> under certain conditions, have a right to secede, but it, they would have had to be subjected to a past injustice. Without uh, being subjected to a past injustice, they would not have the right to secede. So what are these conditions that he is introducing in order for a cultural group to be entitled to unilaterally secede in general? Uh, well, it's uh, three, case, three cases that he's mentioned. Let's suppose that there's a systematic violation of human rights to the people. And he mentions, I'm giving his example, the Kurds in Iraq. Their, their, their rights were radically and systematically human rights be violated. Therefore, they, had, they would have the right to secede under his account. Annexation of territory. The Baltic states, when they were concurred by the USSR, it was an unjust, uh, it was an annexation of the, their territory. Because of that, they are entitled to secede. And a new account, a new condition that was introduced <laughs> in his book in 2007, if it, uh, a state did choose to provide them with certain form of autonomy, uh, there, it was not necessarily compelled to do so, but the, the state has decided to give some kind of autonomy. And at one point, although that was agreed, they decide not to no longer have that kind of autonomy. Well, this would be a case of vi systematic violation of intrastate autonomy agreements. And he thinks that in Kosovo, this is precisely what happened. The Serb government had given to the Kosovar a certain level of autonomy. And in 19, 
90, roughly, they decided to remove that status of autonomy. This is systematically violating an intrastate agreement. Uh, so Kosovo would have the right to secede under Buchanan's account. I would say that immediately introducing my own account, because I would say I'm on the side of just cause theories instead of being on the side of primary right theories. But I think that uh, Buchanan's list of conditions justifying secession is incomplete. I would say that uh, if we violate the procedural right to self-determination that I've discussed, uh, that would be a, a justification for secession. And also, if there is a violation of internal self-determination in either of the three senses that I've introduced, that would be another justification for secession. This is the theory that I discussed in Inquiry 2007. So my differences with Buchanan are numerous, although I belong to the same family of just cause theorists, theorists concerning secession. I would say that, no, I'm sorry, uh, Alan, peoples are not the same kind of groups as other cultural groups. They are in some way special, and international law recognizes that. They have the right to internal self-determination that other groups may have, but only in the partial sense. Um, um, they are sources of valid moral claims like individuals. They are bearers of collective rights. And they have a general primary right to internal self-determination. I am a, a, a just cause theoretician. Therefore, I don't think we have a primary right to external self-determination. But the people have the right to, and a primary right to internal self-determination. And therefore, uh, they have the right to remedial uh, external self-determination if their right to internal self-determination is violated. Uh, because of that, there is no presumption in favor of existing state that it seems to me Buchanan favors. Fa Buchanan is, in spite of the fact that he's discussing secession and allowing secession to take place under con certain conditions, these are very strict conditions and uh, we should stick with existing states as much as possible. And it's only under extreme circumstances that we should allow peoples to secede. So there's a bias in favor of existing states. And my account is that peoples that do have a state, they don't necessarily have the right to own the state. They won't have the right to own the state if they don't recognize the internal self-determination of their constitutive peoples. Okay, I'm, I just said my general hypothesis, so I'm going beyond that, especially since I have only 7 minutes and 31, 30 seconds, 29. And, um, okay, so uh, Buchanan says, I'm still using his material, I find it very useful. Buchanan says, we've got two theories, the primary right theory and the uh, just cause theory of secession. Which one is the best one? On paper, they might be both seductive. We might be inclined to endorse either one of them. But how are we going to institutionalize these theories? Maybe the test to pass in order to have a, a good theory of secession is not only to, to provide something that looks good on paper, but also that may reasonably be concretely realized in existing international institutions. So Buchanan devises many different criteria. I will discuss only the first three. Uh, different criteria for determining whether a theory of secession it passes the test of institutionalization. A good theory of secession that can be institutionalized will be compatible with the progressive elements of international law. Um, it won't go completely against the existing international law. It will connect with some parts of that are the most progressive elements in international law. They should also, these theories that are to be institutionalized, be potentially acceptable to the international community. They could not be a theories that the international community would never want to in accept in any shape or form. And they must not create perverse incentives. It must not be a theory that when you apply it, it creates a systematic international chaos.
Okay, let's look only at these three criteria. Uh, and in order to begin our reflection, we have to consider uh, <coughs> self-determination in international law. And what we discover, I believe, is something that plays not only against primary theories of secession, but I will also add that plays against Buchanan's version of the just cause theory of secession. So the good theory will be my theory. <laughs> we're all like that. What I cannot change. I mean, we, we're, we're all defending the theories that we're putting forward. Uh, according to international, all peoples have a right to internal self-determination. It's, first of all, peoples that have the right to self-determination, not cultural groups. Uh, cultural groups are entitled to collective rights, in my account. And uh, if you are not able to provide collective rights to your own internal minority fragments of people or your own minority people, in the case of the, your minority peoples, they have the right to self-determination. But in the case of minority fragments, if you're not able to protect their collective rights, you're not also entitled to hold on to your sovereign state. So I'm willing to accept that cultural groups have many rights, many collective rights, but not necessarily the right the full-blown right to internal self-determination. Uh, in international law, we're saying that also, that it's peoples who have the right to internal self-determination. And internal self-determination is defined as I defined it. And it seems to be a primary right that only peoples have, and it's a primary right that they have, uh, the, internal right, the right to internal self-determination. But it's all, it also seems that in the international law, no people has a primary right to secede. We all know, we have all learned our lessons in international law. A people will have a right to secede only if it's a colony or if it is oppressed. That is, it has been conquered by an external sovereign state and it's under an oppression regime. And also, uh, it is also said in international law that a people may have the right to secede if the state did not respect its own internal self-determination. So the remedial justification I mentioned here, colonization, oppression, and the violation of the internal right to self-determination. So the winner is uh, the just cause theory of secession. Uh, and the reason why is that international law does not accept the primary right to secede. So if you want your account of secession to fit with a little bit with the international law. We have to acknowledge, it seems to me, that international law is going in the opposite direction. So it's not easy to see how it could be compatible with the elements, the progressive elements in international law. Uh, and the international community is not about to say, okay, it's all right if all our internal peoples want to secede. We're not about to see that happen uh, in the next few years, to say the least. And the primary right to secession would create perverse incentive. There are, according to certain accounts, thousands of peoples that do not have their own state. So if they all have the primary right to secede, it's, we're saying to them, go ahead. Imagine the kind of perverse incentive that would create. So. As far as the criteria of institutionalization is concerned, if we take the three criteria introduced by Buchanan, primary theories are not in good shape. But Buchanan's version does not fare very much better because uh, it doesn't seem to me to capture this, the progressive elements of international law where international law is willing to recognize that peoples are special, they are the subject and owners of a primary right to internal self-determination, these are things with which uh, Buchanan would disagree, so I don't think that it fits perfectly well with, the international, with international law. And I would say that uh, the international community is not about to say that uh, all cultural groups could, under certain conditions, be entitled to secede. There are, I said there are thousands of people. The number of cultural groups that exist, now it's by tens of thousands, so it would, uh, it would not work and would create perverse incentive. So uh, I would say that my own account is in accordance with international law. Uh, it would be, that's a controversial claim I'm making, acceptable for already existing multi-nation states that want 
to prevent the proliferation of secession. Perhaps at this moment in time, sovereign states are not willing to codify the conditions for secession. But imagine that with globalization and democracy, more and more minority peoples decide they want to secede. Well, it would be perhaps then in the interest of actual existing state to say, uh, let them, wait a minute, let's codify the conditions on which you could secede and we'll show to you that we are able to meet those conditions. So there should be, there could be an interest on the part of existing states. And it would create stability for already existing states. So it would not create perverse incentive. But, and I'm finishing on that, I see I only have five seconds and I'm at my last slide. Come on. That's nice. Uh, any remedial account, including my account, is confronted with a, a particular difficulty of institutionalization because who is to say, I'm always asked that question, so before I'm asked, I will prevent things by saying it myself. Who is to say and decide whether a particular people meets the condition justifying secession? Who's the authority that is going to do that? Indeed, there should be an authority at the international level or at the supranational level that eventually should be in charge of determining whether uh, a particular right to secede is acceptable or not. Actually, uh, we have similar institutions that are uh, beginning to, to, to go in that direction. The International Court of Justice has ruled uh, with a particular uh, suggestion concerning the Kosovar case. They said uh, things that made them accept that Kosovo was a sovereign state. The UN has been involved in a different self-determining process in Eritrea, East Timor, and Western Sahara. So we could imagine that they could be involved a little more. We also have to say that in many different declarations already existing in international law, among other things, the Declaration on uh, Friendly Relations Among States of 1970, uh, the sovereign states signed that declaration saying that a people uh, is not entitled to violate the territorial integrity of a state that would respect their own right to internal self-determination. So the international community is up to a certain point engaged, committed, just through a declaration in that direction. So because of that, it's not mere utopia. It is, as Rawls would say, a realist utopia. It's, it's imaginable that in the near future, uh, although the international institutions would, won't be there for a while, you could imagine that a seceding people and a parent state could agree on the list of international constitutional jurists that would make recommendations to both parties saying what should be done in order to repair, and if that cannot be done, then perhaps secession could be uh, an option. Um, so that's not complete utopia, that's uh, reality. And in our website in the philosophy department at University of Montreal, a few years ago, it's no longer on the website, there was a I Ching proverb that said, the philosophy of a century is the common sense of the next one. So perhaps here uh, it's a utopia, but in just 100 years from now, it would be common sense for us to have such international institutions. I thank you. Thank you very much for your fluent and very exciting presentation. Now it's your turn to ask your questions. I think you would like to take them one by one, if you like. Yeah. Yes, yes, please. Um, as, a, as an international lawyer myself, I was very touched by the respect that you, you showed to international law, perhaps a bit concerned with the degree of respect that you showed. Um, you seem to accept Buchanan's position that um, any uh, theory that we're going to come up with now has to be in accordance with at least some aspects of international law that we feel a bit more positive about than some others. Um, if you applied Buchanan's approach to international law as it existed prior to 1945, would it in fact suggest that any theory of international law which denied colonialism was in fact unrealistic and not to be accepted? Uh, so, because of the fact that international law may be very reactionary at one point, to have a general criteria saying that we should fit with the progressive elements of international law, you see, it seems to me, 
it seems to you that uh, it may lead, if it would have led before 1945 to an extraordinary thing. But well, well, in it, other words, international law developed in many ways yeah, yeah. to accommodate <laughs> yeah. and, uh, some would say, mm -hmm. fully support colonialism. Yeah. Uh, we don't need to look back very far yeah. to find a pretty good example, I think. But uh, if we accept that international law is changing, that law is changing, it will continue to change, we can uh, say that, uh, well, it does not completely go against international law, and g given its actual state, because in its actual state, it is agreeing that uh, a people could have the right to secede if it is a colony. And it could, it could also have the right to secede if it is oppressed. And it could also have the right to secede if its internal right to, to self-determination is not met. Well, I think that my own account captures that. And that's a progress, I'm, clear, I'm committed to say that that's a progressive element of international law. And it's a big battle to defend that right, because there is, in North America anyway, an army of philosophers and political theorists, theorists who say, ah, no, not peoples, what are you talking about? That's problematic. Oh, no, not collective rights of people. That's unbelievably problematic. Oh, you're talking about the internal right to self-determination? That is extremely problematic. I'm fighting against all those people, and I'm, I'm looking at international law. I show that it is an international law, and then some people say, oh, it's, it should not be interpreted in a progressive sense. So there is already a big battle going on. So I'm saying, with my uh, attitude of um, uh, uh, a realist utopian, uh, I want to be realist enough to connect with the actual world, but also be utopian enough to say, well, there's a lot of room for progress within international law. And that's my position. So uh, it's very hard to maintain that equilibrium and that balance between utopia and realism. But there should be a little bit of realism in our utopia and a little bit of utopia in our realism. That's how I, I reached the, the kind of position to actual international.